Well, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for Andy for leading us um, through that time where we were able to reflect on our griefs, um, be able to reflect on the griefs of others, but also at the same time uh, see the blessings of God uh, in the past year. Um, today I have the privilege to preach the next topic in Pastor Andy's sermon series, God's Hearts for All Nations. And today we're going to be looking a little closer at the theme of community and exploring what that looks like in the book of Acts. Uh, but before we turn there, um, when I learned that I would be preaching on the theme of community, um, I suddenly back, thought back to 2019. Or was it 2018? I've lost all sense of time. Um, but I remember there was a time where I was with uh, Novi, Stephen, and Andy, and we were at uh, the Pastor and Elders Conference at Tuscarora. And during that conference, uh, Pastor Eric Sorensen, who was the pastor of Epiphany, showed us a video and asked us to think about what are some of the deepest wants and needs of our current generation. And in this video, he randomly surveyed some of his congregants and asked them one simple question. What makes Epiphany special to you? And for today, I would actually like us to watch this brief two-minute video and see if we can pick anything up. So Amy, if you can please share that on Zoom. Going to a church in a neighborhood where I live I think that it's really important for churches to be a part of their local community, and I think Epiphany does a really good job with that. So I've really grown through just the relationships here at Epiphany. God has really worked through the people here. You know, people from all walks of life, from, from Singapore and Germany and, you know, different parts of the States. Epiphany for me has provided a family of believers, which I think is probably one of the most important facets of, of faith is to have a community and people that can hold you accountable and that can pray over you, pray with you, and that can really just help encourage you in your spiritual growth. People come and stay, and I, I just appreciate that so much, that, that we've had so many people come and actually make this their home and be a part of it and uh, come together as, uh, as a family. So I, I'm a student uh, at New York University, very close to this church. I actually live five minutes away. Um, and it's really great to have Epiphany in the neighborhood. I feel like New York is such a difficult place to find like a community of people who are not all the same necessarily, but share the same values and the same aspirations as young people. And I think Epiphany really has that. And I think that it's really special to be able to come every Sunday and see your friends. I find it just so interesting how how consistent the responses were amongst, um, amongst the attendees, that what made Epiphany special to them, and more specifically, what made gathering as a body of believers special to them were the relationships they developed, but also the community that was formed. And one person who was interviewed, um, his name is Viet, said that all people from all walks of life, from Singapore and Germany and different parts of the state, would gather together as one community, and that is what made going to church every Sunday special for him. Now, unfortunately, due to COVID, Epiphany no longer meets, but Viet and Johannes, the super tall German dude, um, they do meet every Tuesday um, for their bi-weekly uh, missional community group. So we can see that they're still carrying forth God's vision for community even after Epiphany closed. 
And the reason why I share this story with you all today is that in the passage we'll read in just a moment, we will see actually the very first instance of a truly multicultural and a multi-ethnic community. And in this community, we begin to see the fulfillments of the message that Pastor Andy has been preaching on for the past couple of weeks, and that is the fulfillments of God's hearts for all nations. So let us read our passage today. It starts from verse 19, and it reads, Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And it was there that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, before I begin today's message, I, I, want us to, I want to take us back to our high school and college days where we were forced to learn about physics and joke with our friends, when are we ever going to need this? And by God's grace, he learned physics so that we can talk about it today. Now, it's, you know, I'm not going to go too crazy here, uh, but for my first point, I want to talk about something called centripetal force and centrifugal force. Um, and for anyone who has ever witnessed a tornado, you'll know exactly what I mean. Because a tornado is actually the perfect balance of these two forces. Um, a tornado wants to suck everything into the center, which is centripetal force. Uh, but at the same time, you'll see that things are constantly being blown out of the tornado, like miles away, and that is centrifugal force. So we have two forces. We have a force that pulls everything in, which is centripetal force, and we also have a force that pushes everything out, which is centrifugal force. And you might be wondering at this point, did I sign in on the wrong Zoom call? What does this have to do with the gospel? Why is he, why is he talking about physics? Well, in the Old Testament, and even in the early church, um, right after Jesus died, God's heart for all nations was shown through a centripetal model. In the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be like a magnet, drawing everything from the outside world to come in to Israel to experience God's goodness and God's grace. They're supposed to be like a tornado that sucked every culture and every people group into the center. And after the death of Jesus and the formation of the church in Jerusalem, we would see people from all walks of life outside of Jerusalem being sucked in or drawn in to this one church. 
And we saw a bit of that last week with Cornelius, a man who did not live in Jerusalem, make the journey into the center, into Jerusalem, to receive the gospel from Peter. But what happened with Cornelius and what happened earlier in chapter 11, which we did not quite read, uh, was that God began to affirm that even Gentiles can be saved. And what we see then is that the centripetal model is now flipped upside down, and instead of everyone being drawn into the center, now everyone from the center is moving out. And like God's first call to humans to scatter, we see that God's faithful disciples are no longer staying in one place, but as verse 19 says, they have now traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word, however, only amongst the Jews. Now, Pastor Andy talked last week about the importance of the story of Cornelius because it showed that everyone can receive Christ's saving grace, that God doesn't show favoritism to a certain culture or a certain ethnic group, and that God breaks down the barriers of prejudice in our lives, uh, just as he has done with Peter. And for some Jewish Christians at that time, they were not satisfied with just preaching to the Jews. And so we read from verse 20 that some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks. I put a little question mark there. We'll talk about that in a moment. Also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, Antioch is roughly 300 miles north of Jerusalem and was at that time considered the heart of Syria. It was the third most populous city of that time with about 600,000 people. Um, the only two cities that could beat it were Rome and Alexandria. And 600,000 people doesn't sound a lot in today's standards, uh, but if you were to think about it, in Jerusalem, at the same time, there are only 60,000 people living there. So Antioch was most definitely considered a metropolis. And not only was the city populous, but it also had an incredibly diverse group of people from Greece, from Romans, to Syrians, to Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, and even Indians making up the population during that time. And the thing is, if you wanted cultural diversity, Antioch was most definitely the place to go. Now, I promised myself that I won't go too crazy with the exegesis, but there is one important point that I, I want to highlight with verse 20. If you look at the NIV, it will say that they began to speak to the Greeks, and that's where I put the little question mark. Now, the Greek word for Greek um, in this passage is Hellenistas, but this word is quite unique because it can refer either literally to people who are Greek, but it can also refer to people who adopted Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and Greek thoughts. Now, even some of the Jews during the time of Jesus were also called Hellenistas or Hellenists because they also subscribed to Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and Greek thoughts. So anyone from any background could be called a Hellenist. And if you look up this verse with all the different translations, you'll see two camps. You'll see one camp, like the NIV, who translates this literally to Greek people, but you'll also see people who translate this as Hellenists or anyone who just subscribed to Greek thought. And in this case, I actually think Hellenists is the better 
and more accurate translation. In fact, throughout the New Testament, the word Greek was often the code word for Gentile or anyone who is non-Jewish. And so we see these missionaries who went to Antioch were so moved by God's grace to the Gentiles that not only do they want to cross national boundaries, but now they want to intentionally cross cultural boundaries as well. They were, they're not, I'm sorry, they not only, sorry, not only are they willing to share the gospel, but they now have a calling from God to tell the Greeks, the Romans, the Syrians, the Phoenicians, the Arabs, the Persians, the Egyptians, and the Indians about the saving grace found in our Lord. In Genesis, God calls us to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And today, in this passage, we see these Jewish disciples take that message to heart, but with the gospel, to obey God's command to scatter, to go forth and to make disciples of all nations. And as they did that, we read that the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. That in Antioch, we truly have, for the first time, a church with many nations, a church that received the grace of God and the message of God that his heart is for Gentiles too. And as this church began to grow, uh, worshiping a Jewish king, their neighbors began to realize something peculiar is going on. You see, at that time, for anyone who was a Gentile who wanted to be a Jew, it was not an easy process. First, obviously, there's a huge culture gap that you got to bridge. Second, the, Jew, uh, the Gentiles must begin to obey Jewish laws, um, including food laws and also circumcision, which sounds terribly traumatic as an adult. And finally, even when a Gentile converts, he or she is always seen as a second-rate Jew, and more often than not, they would still be seen as Gentiles. But what was unique for these non-believers is that they begin to see their friends or their neighbors gathering together to worship a Jewish king. And they began to notice that these new Christ followers, they did not have to obey Jewish food laws. They didn't have to be circumcised. And oddly enough, these Jewish people who proclaim Christ as king accept the new Gentile converts, not as second-rate Jews, but as equals. And they began to realize that this motley crew of Christ followers lived not only counterculturally to the Greco-Roman culture of the time, but also lived counterculturally to the Jewish culture of the time as well. And this brings me to my second point today, that Christianity is the party of Christ. And so as these non-believers looked at this unlikely group of people, you could almost imagine or sense like this feeling of utter confusion, like who are these people? They have some guy named Barnabas, who is a Greek and a Jew, also another leader of the church named Simeon the Niger, or literally Simeon the Black, who is clearly from Africa. Then you have Menaean, who was a Jewish aristocrat serving alongside of Lucius of Cyrene, another African. And then the Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul of Tarsus, comes to worship and serve alongside this incredibly diverse group of individuals. Just what in the world is going on here? And in the ancient world, it was, it was considered wisdom 
to be able to classify people into different groups. It was considered wisdom to know the different countries of the world to neatly categorize people into distinct boxes. And sometimes we see the same thing happening in our day and age, where people are split amongst cultural, ethnic, and political groups, that there must be a neat category for everyone so that we know who to be friends with and who not to be friends with. And we insidiously use these categories to determine who to trust and who not to trust. And it's crazy to think that only a few generations before me, that churches were split amongst racial lines on the basis of segregation. But what we see in this chapter is not only did the word Christian have significance in the ancient world, but it still has significance today. That as non-believers in Antioch saw a truly multi-ethnic and multicultural group gather together and break every social norm of the time, there was no neat category to place them. It wasn't a Jewish religion that tried to make everyone Jewish, nor was it a Gentile religion that tried to make Jews adopt Gentile culture. It was truly for the first time a novel group of individuals who, despite their differences, are united and they all call Christ as their king. And because of this, the labels of Jews and Greeks or Gentiles or whatever have you, they no longer fit. The cultural and ethnic divide that caused so many conflicts, both physical and political, between these two groups were dismantled before their very eyes in this new church in Antioch. And since no name fits, the only name non-believers could think of to categorize this group of people was Christian, which literally means the party of Christ. And what I find to be so beautiful about this is that the church in Antioch, despite their, their diversity, found unity in Christ. And their unity in Christ was so evident that it wasn't even the believers who called themselves Christians in light of their shared unity in Christ, but it was the non-believers who called them this. It was the non-believers who were so stunned by Christian unity that the non-believers were the first ones to notice. But what was the fruit of this unity? And this moves me to our final point today. In a book titled Divided by Faith, uh, two sociologists, Michael Emerson from Rice University and Christian Smith from the University of North Carolina, uh, they want to look at the relationship between the evangelical religion and the problem of race in America. They did various studies and surveys, but one that stuck out to me is that when they analyzed American evangelicals and asked them about their solution to the race problem, American evangelicals usually respond in either one of two ways. First, they might just flat out deny that there's a race problem altogether. Or the second way they might respond is that they'll acknowledge that there indeed is a race problem, but their solution is to form friendships across the races, uh, to follow Jesus' commands to love their neighbors as themselves. And this is absolutely critical and absolutely crucial. Pastor Andy talked last week about breaking down the walls of prejudice. 
And he has also brought up in a previous sermon about Spencer Perkins, a black Christian man, and Chris Rice, a white Christian man who developed a deep friendship based on mutual listening. However, what the researchers noticed was that beyond the call for friendship, there was almost never a respondent who called for financial or cultural sacrifice. In the words of the researchers, they said, they, being the American evangelicals, do not advocate or support changes that might cause extensive discomfort or change their economic and cultural lives. In short, they maintain what is for them the non-costly status quo. And I remember as I was reading those words, I felt exposed for my own hypocrisy. You know, I often talk a great deal about loving our neighbors as ourselves, but rarely do I ever talk about God's other commands to give to the poor, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, or to plead the case of the widow, each of which asks us to go above and beyond what is comfortable for us, each of which asks us to make a sacrifice for the sake of those who are in a less advantageous position than ours. And as I studied the passage I am preaching on today, we see that the Antioch Church does exactly what a lot of American evangelicals do not do, myself included. We see that Agabus comes down from Jerusalem and takes on this 300-mile journey to Antioch, one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire, and proclaims that there would be a famine that would strike the entirety of the Roman world. And in response to this, what do we see the church in Antioch doing? The sensible thing to do would be to keep all the grains to ourselves. Who knows how long this famine will last? Who knows how much the price of food might skyrocket? They could rationalize a thousand, a million reasons not to give. But what we see is an entirely different picture, and is a picture of what true unity looks like. And this picture shows up in two ways. The first way we see it is that the Jewish prophets, is that a Jewish prophet receives from God a message that a famine would come. Agabus could have just stayed in Jerusalem, but knowing that he now has brothers and sisters in Christ in Antioch, he decides to personally take a 300-mile journey where there's a possibility of facing bandits and criminals on the road, which was definitely not an uncommon occurrence at that time, and out of the love he has for his fellow believers, who he did not even meet yet, he is willing to sacrifice not only his time, but potentially even his life to make this journey to Antioch, to tell, that his, to tell his fellow Syrian, Egyptian, African, and Asian believers that there might be a famine that will come to the entire Roman world and to give them time to prepare for this incoming famine. And when the more affluent church of Antioch heard this, we see the second picture of what unity looks like. The Antioch church was determined to help out their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. They were willing to sacrifice what they had on behalf of the Jerusalem church, even in the face of impending famine in their own region too. And for me, this taught me a very valuable lesson. It taught me that 
Christianity is not just about getting right with God or getting other people right with God. It's not just about reconciling ourselves with God, but it is also about reconciling ourselves with each other as the body of Christ. Christianity is about crossing over geographical and ethnic boundaries to demonstrate genuine sacrificial love, even if it comes at the cost of our own comforts and our own reputation. It tells us a message that being nice to our neighbor is the absolute bare minimum, but what we are truly called to do is to love our neighbors, to be willing to sacrifice to our neighbors, and to stand with our neighbors when they cannot stand up for themselves. And as I end the sermon today, I I noticed a rise of violence against our Asian neighbors and the rise of racist remarks against the people we serve in this very community. And I want to encourage us to take some time this week and, and critically think, in what ways can our church here show sacrificial love to our neighbors on 8th Avenue in Sunset Park? In what ways can our church be a blessing to all nations living around us? And as we begin to dream, I pray that God will take our visions and genuinely bring them to fruition. And I pray that our church will be such a blessing to our community that even non-Christians will look at us and say, yes, they are Christians. These people truly serve and worship Christ, their King. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel and your heart, and that it extends beyond cultural and ethnic boundaries, uh, that you're not just the God of Israel, but that you are indeed the God of all people. And so we pray to you today that you will break down whatever barriers that divide us as Christians, and pray that you'll correct us if we have ever wronged anyone. But more than anything, I pray that you'll teach us to demonstrate sacrificial love, just as the church in Antioch has done thousands years before us. Um, Let us carry on the tradition and the the pattern that they have set and continue to love those around us uh, and those beyond us so that all nations in the world will know that we are your disciples by our love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.